Today, I'd like to speak together on the topic of what aspect of Buddhism ought we to study? What approach to, to Buddhism should we take in our studies? I'd like to discuss this because now there are dozens of different kinds of Buddhism in different forms, different various cultural traditions which are circulating around in the world today. And for us to get to the essence or heart of Buddhism, we need to know which direction or what attitude to take towards the Buddhist teachings. And for this reason today, we will speak on the topic of what aspect of Buddhism should we study. We can approach Buddhism as a religion, or we can come at it as a cultural thing, or an aspect of culture. We can approach Buddhism as an art of living, or we can even look at Buddhism and study it as a philosophy. There are many, many different aspects or angles with which we can study Buddhism. We can approach it in many different directions. So it is up to you to look at these different aspects closely and to find the approach which is truly useful and beneficial. For this reason, we'll discuss some of these different aspects of Buddhism, some of the different positions we can take in respect to Buddhism, so that we have some understanding of these different aspects. Once we have developed this understanding, then it will be possible for us to choose the aspect of Buddhism or the approach to Buddhism that is most beneficial, most healthy, and most useful. If we discuss Buddhism as a religion, we, we can say that Buddhism is a religion that is based in natural principles. The teachings of Buddhism all depend on what we can call natural evolution. In general, religions can be broken up into two groups. The first group are religions that hold that there is some sort of God who is a creator, that everything is created. And so this, this is a religion that we could call creationist. The second type of religion does not hold that there is some sort of God, but it holds that everything is natural and arises from out of, from within 
nature. And this second kind of religion can be called evolutionist. So there are creationist religions and evolutionist religions. And Buddhism belongs to the second category. Buddhism is a religion about natural evolution. So then we, thus we prepare ourselves to study nature, the law of nature, and then our way of living that follows from that law of nature in order to avoid and prevent the problems of life. In Buddhism, we approach life from this direction. We study the law of nature and learn how to live in accordance with it. When we do so, there is no need for us to, to do something such as worship a god or worship and pray to any holy or sacred thing. In Buddhism, this kind of practice is unnecessary. The second approach is Buddhism as culture. In the history of the human species, which stretches over the last eight or 10,000 years, we have seen a lot of development in progress on the physical level in man's dealing with environment, the environment, and also man's development of our own bodies. There is also a development which in progress in terms of the mind, of the intellect, and we've witnessed a great many changes in this area as well. And further, there is a third line of development which has been happening through the his throughout the history of mankind. And this we can call the progress of or evolution of Siddhipanya, mindfulness and wisdom, which is the understanding of the fundamental truth of life. These three lines of development have been carrying on throughout our history and have developed to a certain, certain degree. The highest that these had, had developed to before the Buddha's time, especially in the third, the third way, was the belief or understanding that there was a universal soul, that all was one. And so there was the idea of a universal soul. This was the highest belief that existed. But then Buddhism came along as the, the pinnacle of this cultural development, especially in the area of mindfulness and wisdom. It's the most recent development in this line. And what Buddhism said is even that universal soul 
which everybody thought was the highest thing. Buddhism says there's no such thing. In all of this life, all this world, there is no such thing as a soul, as an individual self, any kind of eternal, permanent God. None of these things exist. And so in this way, Buddhism has transcended all the previous developments in in spiritual in the spiritual line. And so this is why we say as a culture, Buddhism is the the pinnacle of cultural progress. Now we come to the third approach to Buddhism, which is Buddhism as art. As we just mentioned with culture, we can see in Buddhism as art that there are three lines or three levels. The first is the physical material level. The second is the purely mental level. And the third is the level of Panya, mindfulness and wisdom. Buddhism as art, the, there is a very beautiful and exquisite development which has nothing to do with, with material things, nor is it related to purely mental things such as deep levels of concentration or abstract reasoning. But it exists on this third level. True Buddhist art is a very beautiful and exquisite development in which the most efficient and skillful techniques available or arts or skills have been developed in order to free life from the thing we call tukka. Tukka we can translate as pain, suffering, dissatisfaction, frustration, grief, anguish. Buddhism as art is the very beautiful means by which we remove all this dukkha, all the pain, all these problems and dissatisfactions from life. So this is the meaning of Buddhism as art. Now, if you were to go to the library or a bookstore and find a book on Buddhist art, it would probably be a very confused thing that is only talking about sculpture or Buddhist architecture, various buildings, Buddha images, paintings, and things like this. This is a very low and crude understanding of Buddhist art and it misses the entire point. The real beauty, the real skillfulness in Buddhism is not on this material level, but it is in the line of mindfulness and wisdom, which is developed in a very exquisite and marvelous way, so that there is no tukkha in life. There are probably many of you who are artistic 
or have an artistic bent. And for those of you who do, we encourage you then to pursue this Buddhism as art on the highest and most profound level. Don't settle for a purely material Buddhist art, but come to understand and explore the supreme and most highly developed Buddhist art, which is an artistic, skillful means by which suffering and pain or mental defilements such as greed, anger, confusion, fear, and worry cloud the mind. Where these things, the suffering and these defilements, are removed from the mind, where the mind, the heart, is cleansed of these, these unnecessary things. Or we can say Buddhist art is the means by which or the skills by which ignorance and stupidity are removed from the mind, where the mind drops its foolish misunderstanding and, and develops in wisdom. We'd like to say in advance that if you practice what is called vipassana, or insight, correctly and sufficiently, meaning that you don't latch onto a narrow understanding of vipassana that is associated with one specific technique or meditation practice or posture or time of the day. But if you have a, a thorough and complete understanding of vipassana, and then practice that adequately, then that will be Buddhist art. Because that correct vipassana, or insight, will be the means by which life is freed of tukka. Through vipassana, life is no longer clouded and disturbed by the defilements of greed, anger, worry, hatred, fear, possessiveness, and selfishness. And lastly, by vipassana, all ignorance will be destroyed so that life is lived purely on the level of the dipanya, mindfulness and wisdom. Fourth, we'll look at Buddhism as science. Science, of course, is something very, very important in the modern world. And many of you may actually be scientists of one sort or another, having studied some field of science in your educational past. We'd like to point out to you that Buddhism is a complete science, and that it is something completely and truly scientific. It follows from and is based in scientific principles. What we mean by this is that we take something, something real, that genuinely exists. We don't, say, for instance, work with a hypothesis, 
you don't deal with abstract things that exist only in our imagining. But we take real things which are arising in life and study those. We study them and experiment with them until we develop the knowledge of what that thing is, what it is like, until we know the, that thing completely. We will know the cause that brings that thing into existence. We will understand what there is about that thing which is undesirable, which is unnecessary and destructive. And then we will know the way or means for removing that destructive aspect of whatever thing it is we are studying. So Buddhism is a science and it exists in these, on these four basic scientific principles by which we study the reality of things rather than our, our ideas and theories about them. And so in this way, by following this approach, each of you can become a Buddhist scientist by, by following Buddhism as a science. This is something that is greatly needed in the world today. We need to use science in this truly scientific way, which is Buddhism. Fifth, we can study Buddhism as truth, as the ultimate truth of nature. This means studying until we come to four levels or four, four basic facts. The first is the fact of nature itself, the clear seeing and understanding of this thing we call nature, which includes everything. The second is the law of this nature. There is a fundamental principle that governs all of nature. Third, there is the duty of living and practicing in accordance with that law. This is the duty of all, of all natural things or all natural phenomena. And fourth is the result that arises through that practice according to the law of nature. These four facts will arise through studying Buddhism as the ultimate truth of nature. It's one truth, and we can see this one truth in these four aspects. The most important one of which is to see the duty that each of us has in relationship to the law of nature. By fully understanding this fact and living our lives accordingly, by practicing in harmony with the law of nature, that will give rise to the most desirable fruit or goal that there is in life, which is the end of tukkha, which is the elimination of all dissatisfaction, pain, conflict, and tension from human experience. These four meanings 
of the ultimate truth of nature which we just listed can be summarized by one word tatata which is difficult to translate into English but we can see that the first the first of these meanings which is nature the truth of nature we can see that it is just that way it's just the way it is it, it doesn't exist in some other way it can't be changed you can't try and play around with it and make it into something different it's just the way it is the law of nature is just the way it is it has a quality of being such like that it ha- it doesn't exist in any other way except the way it is the third the duty according to the law of nature it's just that way you may not you may have developed certain tendencies which would lead you to not want to live in that way you may disagree or you may have your own prejudices and desires but that doesn't change the suchness of this duty the duty is just just like it is you can't change it it's just that so the wisest thing to do is to understand this duty and live accordingly and the fourth the fruits or benefits of practicing in line with this duty this fruit is just what it is it's nothing else and nothing different it's the fruit that just arises from practicing according to the law or the duty according to the law of nature so tatata suchness or thusness is the summary of all these four meanings things are just the way they are when the mind grasps when the mind understands this suchness the quality of of things being the way they are and not being in some other way they exist as they do not according to our desires when the mind finally understands this and adjusts itself to this reality then the mind is free of all pain all dissatisfaction all suffering and all dukkha merely by fully comprehending the fact of suchness of tatata the next approach to buddhism is buddhism as morality buddhism as morality is a basic foundation for all spiritual practice this moral level which is has the ethical structure of intellectual structure behind it is a basic foundation this approach to buddhism is a means by which we can live together without selfishness all societies will recognize that selfishness is a destructive tendency and if this selfishness is allowed to get out of hand it will 
it will destroy the society as well as the individual members of that society. And so morality is a way of controlling this selfishness and eventually eliminating it in order that we can live together. We do so by understanding that we are all existing on this planet together as comrades in birth, illness, aging, and death. We, we share these things in common, these conditions of sentient existence. And so we recognize this commonality and strive to live selflessly. In Buddhism, we do this by drawing on the source of the essential and most central teaching of Buddhism. Morality is not itself the essential teaching of Buddhism. The essential teaching is about dhatata, suchness, which we just mentioned, or about sunyata, voidness, the fact that all existence is void of anything that we could call a self or a soul, that there is nothing that we can legitimately call I or mine. This, these teachings or truths of datata or sunyata is the essence of Buddhism. When this essential fact is understood, then morality will arise automatically. As soon as we begin to see that there's no self, then there no longer will be any selfishness, this egoistic orientation towards ourselves and for ourselves. This will drop away, and then there will be an automatic morality. In this way, we see, we can understand morality on the deepest, most profound level, instead of merely a set of rules which are foisted upon us by the government or by various authorities. Instead, we see that morality spontaneously arises out of an understanding of the deepest truth of life. And the last approach towards Buddhism, which we'll mention today, can be taken as a summary of all the previous ones. So please listen carefully. The seventh aspect or approach to Buddhism is Buddhism as a tool. Buddhism as a tool to escape from the prison of life. Buddhism as a tool to release us from the prison of life. Now listen very carefully what we mean by <clears throat> the prison of life. All of us are living. Life is a, a reality. But because of misunderstanding, the, the foolish mind goes and attaches to life. It clings to it and identifies with life as I or as mine. Through this attachment, life is turned into a prison. It confines and constricts and, and entraps. 
And this is what we mean by the prison of life, the jail or penitentiary of life. Through the mind's habit of liking and disliking, of having preferences and preferences or and prejudices, the mind is kept spinning around and round within this prison of life. And in this spinning, there is no true peace or rest. There is nothing but endless agitation and hunger. So it's through this attachment that there is, life is turned into a prison, which is hot and confining. But Buddhism is a tool by which we can escape from this prison. It's a tool that will release us from the prison of life. So this is the meaning, this last meaning of Buddhism. By using this tool, we escape out of that hot, cramped prison and are freed into what we can call new life. This escape is in the Pali language which the Buddha used, is called Vimuti, Vimuti, which we can translate as emancipation or liberation. So Buddhism is a tool for liberation, to liberate the mind from the prison of life, or we can say to free life from the prison of life. And this life that has been freed is then called new life. It's still life, but it's a new kind of life, which is very cool. Another a synonym for, our, for this new life is coolness. And the word the Buddha used is Nibbana. The Buddha said the ultimate goal of life is Nibbana, the state of coolness. When life is trapped within that prison, it's very tense and agitated. Things are very hot and cramped and crowded. Very uncomfortable in that prison. But through emancipation, through the liberation of the mind, then there is coolness and the mind dwells in a very cool, airy, spacious, free condition. So Buddhism as the tool for the emancipation from the prison of life is this seventh aspect which we will look at today. Now those of you who haven't noticed this prison which your mind has created, you won't appreciate Buddhism as a tool for being released from that prison. If you haven't noticed this prison in which you trap yourself, then you won't be interested in escaping from it. But if you begin to, to realize the existence of this, this jail which you have built for yourself, then you will see how ignorant, how not knowing the things that we must know. From the absence of this essential knowledge, 
which let me point out doesn't mean we have to know everything. We just have to know certain essential things. Through lacking this essential knowledge, we build a prison for ourselves. We entrap ourselves with our egoistic attachment to life. And this builds a prison. But through, through applying and using the tool that leads to the escape from this prison, the mind will develop knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge that is essential, not superfluous. And when this knowledge is sufficient and complete, sufficiently complete, then that prison will be destroyed. As soon as there is adequate knowledge and wisdom, that prison will disappear of itself. Note very carefully that what we're talking about is a freeing of the mind, a destruction of this prison of life that happens right here and now. We're talking about this life. Some other religions and philosophies will go and talk about some final liberation which takes place after the death of the body, in which the body dies and the soul or something goes to heaven or it goes to live with some god or some eternal ego or who knows what. All of these kind of beliefs that liberation only happens after the body dies or maybe after the body dies many, many times. This is not Buddhism. Buddhism is teaching that whenever there is correct practice, the result of that practice will be right then and there. If right now we live correctly, then the fruit of that is now. We're not storing up brownie points for some future existence. But if we live correctly now, with wisdom now, then that, the result of that will be experienced right here and now. This is the most important principle of Buddhism. It's called Agaligo. It means that the results of practice are not limited in time. It's not that if you do this, then in five years you'll get your lollipop. There's no appointment book for these results, but it happens here and now. It is not governed or trapped by time. So the release from this prison arises automatically when there is sufficient knowledge and then the mind can be released right here in this life. So we don't even have to get off on the subject of future lives. We're only talking about the present reality. This is where we are and this is what we can work with. So by understanding this present reality wisely, then the mind can be freed from it and there will be no dukkha, no suffering or unsatisfactoriness within this reality. We'd like to give you a special added bonus, which is number eight. Because mm -hmm. there were 
worried that you might have a little misunderstanding. This is regarding the difference between Buddhism as a philosophy and Buddhism as a science. We've already talked about how Buddhism is a science and is completely scientific in every respect. But we'd like to respond to the common misunderstanding of many Europeans and North Americans, or Farang, as is said in Thai. All these Farang go and write books about Buddhism as a philosophy. And you can read many, many books about Buddhism as philosophy or Buddhist philosophy. And without exception, all of these guys have missed the point. When we approach Buddhism as philosophy, we are not using it properly. It's like using a fork to eat soup. You, you won't receive any benefit from doing it. It won't be successful and you won't accomplish your goal. This word philosophy originally meant the love of wisdom. And if we understood that properly in its original sense, then that might have some relevance to Buddhism. But nowadays, philosophy, which is, which is limited to speculative, logical thinking, this kind of thing has no is not what Buddhism is about. In philosophy, philosophers deal with concepts and they get into minute discussions of terms and relationships between terms and all that kind of stuff. This is not what Buddhism is about. As we mentioned, Buddhism is interested in reality, real things, not in abstract concepts. And so Buddhism will work with reality as it exists and study that. This doesn't involve any hypotheses. We don't have to do any guesswork. We don't make estimations or guesstimations or any of this. Just watch reality. Learn from reality. This is what Buddhism is about. It's possible to turn Buddhism into a philosophy, but then you've destroyed its essence and you'll receive no benefit from it. You'll just get yourself caught up in all kinds of intellectual games, which will get you nowhere. You can do that if, it, if you want, if it's fun. But if you're really interested in learning the truth, then use Buddhism as a science. Work with reality. Study the reality of tukkha and learn the way of removing tukkha from human experience or from all experience. This is what Buddhism is truly about. You'll realize this truth that we just pointed out, the difference between abstract speculative philosophy and experimental science. You'll see the difference very clearly when you correctly practice vipassana. 
Let us emphasize this word correctly. If you're doing something that you may call vipassana, but it's incorrect, then it won't do you a whole lot of good. You may get addicted to it or something, but it won't do you much good. But if you practice vipassana correctly, according to the principles of vipassana, then you will realize this truth. The the basic principle of vipassana, which you ought to know, is that the mind is prepared or made ready to look. And then that mind which is, is appropriate, which is prepared and ready, then it looks. It looks at reality. It observes reality. And it just keeps looking and watching and observing until it sees. This seeing is vipassana. First the mind is prepared, then it looks, and then it sees clearly. This clear seeing or insight is vipassana. It does not involve any thinking. The seeing is not thinking. It's not speculation. It's not rational, intellectual thought. Just seeing. This is vipassana. And let us point out that it's not limited to a certain time or a certain place. It's not limited to the way you're sitting or to being in a special building or in a special environment or anything like this. Vipassana is just that activity of the mind that clearly penetrates to the reality of things. When this vipassana is taking place correctly, when you understand vipassana correctly and put it into practice according to that correct understanding, then you will understand these truths automatically. Now we'd like to look at a problem that many of you have probably encountered already you've been traveling around Asia or have had any previous interest in Buddhism, then you've come across all the very different forms of Buddhism. If we look at Buddhism as religion, then we'll get confused by the fact that there are all these different sects and denominations and schools of Buddhism. There are more than you can count. And scholars have a lot of trouble classifying them. There's Theravada Buddhism, or the Southern School of Buddhism. There's Mahayana Buddhism, the Northern School. And then there's Zen Buddhism. There's all these different kinds of Buddhism. And we can get ourselves into a lot of headaches trying to sort out which is the real Buddhism. If we go to the library, that's not much help. We'll find books on Buddhism in Thailand, Buddhism in Burma, (coughs) Buddhism in Sri Lanka, Buddhism in Japan, Buddhism in Korea, Buddhism in China, Buddhism in Tibet, and now even Buddhism in England, Buddhism in Australia, and Buddhism in America. You probably won't have time to read all these books, let alone make any sense out of them. 
Because even if you take Buddhism in, say, Tibet, there are still many different schools and subsects of these different Tibetan Buddhism. And in Thailand, Theravada Buddhism takes a variety of forms. And even Zen Buddhism, which is supposed to be very simple, there's still Soto Zen and Rinzai Zen and who knows how many others. So this is a problem we have to look at. What are we going to do with all these different kinds of Buddhism? Do we have to study them all and learn them all as some poor unfortunate scholars are trying to do? Is this necessary? This is a problem we must consider. Regarding this, regarding this problem of all these different forms and schools of Buddhism, we'd like to give you a bit of advice. We'd like to point out that in all these different schools, there is a superficial surface level, the skin of Buddhism or of the various forms of Buddhism. But within each of these forms, there is a pure essence, which we can call the heart of Buddhism. And we can say that in every one of these different forms, any form that is truly Buddhist will have the same essential heart. All these different forms have the same heart or meat or flesh and are only different on the surface, on the surface, on the superficial level. So our advice is to go beyond that surface level and get to the heart of Buddhism. This essential core of every form of Buddhism is to destroy all attachment in life, to destroy all clinging toward life. Every, every school or form or sect that is truly Buddhist will have as its aim and goal the destruction of all attachment, clinging and grasping to life. So, if we take this as our basic principle, we'll begin to see what we need to do. We can look at all these different schools and see that some of them have a very thin skin, where on others the skin is very, very thick. This is in, this is in response to the various abilities of sentient beings, of human <clears throat> beings. Some people cannot deal very easily with the uh, essence of Buddhism, and so they need to work their way through an elaborate series of steps which are, make up the skin, a superficial level of that form of Buddhism. So in some cases we have a form of Buddhism 
which is only for very, very intelligent people. For example, basic, the, the purer forms of Zen Buddhism demand that somebody be quite intelligent and sharp. Foolish, ignorant people have no, no chance of understanding the pure forms of Zen Buddhism. They just can't make any sense out of it. There are other forms of Buddhism which are more approachable for people of average intellect. And then there are some forms of Buddhism which anybody, no matter how stupid and foolish, can comprehend. And so we find some, we find some examples of teachings where if you, if you repeat some, some phrase 80,000 times, then you will go to live in the, the pure land or the western realm of bliss or something like this. Some very, very simple things that anybody can understand. So you'll find all these different forms of Buddhism responding to the different levels of understanding of people. But all of these different forms, if they are truly Buddhist, will have at them the same essential core, destroying all attachment in life, destroying all clinging to life. This is the basic core. Some, in some form, to get to that core, you have to work through a lot of skin. And it may be very, very difficult to get to the, the essence of Buddhism because there's so much superficial stuff. And there are other schools or forms of Buddhism where the superficial level is not very, not very big. It's not very important. And it's quite easy to get to the essence, to the the heart of Buddhism. So, we'd like to advise you that you don't have to go and study every form of Buddhism. That'll take you a lot of time and you'll probably never get to the essence of Buddhism. You'll just be stuck in the various superficial differences between the different schools. We'd like to advise you that if you just take one form of Buddhism which you are sure leads to this essential core, the destruction of all attachment in life. And then just use that one school or form to actually penetrate to the heart of Buddhism and realize it. That's enough. You don't have to spend your time on all these different forms of Buddhism. Just choose one form which you can understand and which you can understand how this form will get and penetrate to the heart of Buddhism and then practice that form until you get, until, until the mind realizes the heart of Buddhism. This is the advice we'd like to leave you with so you can save time and be as efficient as possible in studying Buddhism. We don't know how much time we have so we have to use the time we do have as wisely as possible. Finally, 
we'd like to summarize today's talk by saying that you can approach Buddhism from any of these different angles which we've mentioned. You can take Buddhism as a religion, Buddhism as culture, Buddhism as art, Buddhism as science, Buddhism as the ultimate truth of nature, Buddhism as morality, Buddhism as social science. You can use whichever aspect you want, but just make sure that this aspect that you use will result in your freedom from the, the prison of life. The aspect that is used isn't important. What matters is that in the end, not in some future life, but here in this life, that there is the realization, there is the fruit of being liberated from the prison of life. Don't get caught up in the form. Don't attach to the form, but realize the essence which is being released from the prison of life. So even all these different schools of Buddhism, Zen Buddhism, Thai Buddhism, Sri Lankan Buddhism, you don't have to, it's not the form that matters, it's realizing the essence, the heart of Buddhism, being released from the prison of life. So use a form, whatever form suits you, but make sure that you don't get tangled up in the form, but you skillfully and wisely use that form, that school, that convention, whatever it is, to realize the emancipation from the prison of life then the mind will be free. It'll be, it will no longer be disturbed by any unsatisfactoriness, pain, or tukka. This is the, the heart and core of all Buddhism, no matter what superficial form it may take. We hope that you will all be successful in penetrating and fully realizing the escape from the prison of life. For today, this ends our talk. We'll see you tomorrow.